0: Well, hello there, listeners. Welcome to the second episode of season four. So we actually recorded this episode a while ago. And as we listened to it, we are like, this is actually really, this is a really great episode for the season. So we decided to kind of recap what we did, help connect it to this season's theme. So um, Drew, you were not there for reasons that I don't remember why. Um, I don't remember
1: either, but I think thanks I said for he was doing the all the country. heavy lifting,
0: you three. I appreciate it.
1: <laughs>
2: <Yeah>. <laughs> um, you were probably in Italy.
0: That, no, that was recent. Um, yeah, I think he was West Virginia or something. Anyways, um, Drew, what was your initial thoughts, and um, how, how do you see this tying in with the season theme?
1: Oh, yeah. Uh, so having had a chance to listen to your conversation, I was instantly uh, envious that I wasn't a part of it because I thought such it, it a good was one. Uh, really good. It was really good. Because I think, uh, you know, given our season theme of dynamics of personhood, you know, we, we have this frame of individuality, mutuality, and unity, right? Mm-hmm. But what, what you three go into in this uh, conversation is uh, those dynamics, I think, have their own complexities and layers as, it, as uh, they are experienced in the world and... Uh, maybe projected into the world, which I think, it, I think it leads to some interesting thoughts and conversations on how do we explore deeply and authentically the dynamics of our personhood without devolving into stereotyping. You know, um, mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. I think this because I think it. I, most people would agree with yeah, the enneagram can be used to stereotype. And we have to be careful not to stereotype. But that's typically where the conversation ends. And, and this takes mm-hmm. that that conversation to a whole
2: different level in some really good
0: ways. Mm-hmm. Seth, what were your thoughts after listening to it again? Yeah.
2: Um, so many. Uh, I'm, I'm with Drew, though, in that um, I feel like we were what we were doing is addressing some of the, even at the end of that episode, the practicality of how to not go into like we talked about in the intro episode some of the distortions of the dynamics yeah because i think that's kind of what we're talking about the stereotypes are the distortions of the dynamics of personhood you know um so yeah. i i just i think it was really valuable to talk about some of the practices that we each have for being cautious or being aware of how it's we are likely to go in that way because if just on in survival you know we are wired for protection not connection you know
0: so right Also, clarification here. Um, If we sound funny, it's it's because Seth and I are recording in a car. Just south of Cookville, Tennessee. I can can guarantee
1: you two look hilarious right now. I really hope there are people wandering around whatever parking lot you're in, wondering what the heck are these two guys doing.
2: Well, we're stealing uh, Starbucks Wi-Fi as well.
0: Starbucks not a sponsor of this episode, um, but they
1: could be. Contact us, Starbucks.
0: <laughs> yes, yes. <laughs> Just don't listen to the episode where I where I did refuse to drink any pumpkin spice lattes. Um, <laughs> yeah. Yes.
1: Well, you did so, say if they were bespoke and artfully crafted. So there we go. Yeah, <laughs> there, consult <there's> me. A- <laughs> um,
0: yeah, I think as I was re-listening to this, I think the reason why I wanted to do this sort of in, uh, episode intro is because. There, there's a few things that we wanted to kind of clear up a little bit and make sure that we are using our language well and correctly. One of which, I mean, just in general, in general, the so what of the episode, we, we sometimes get into these important concepts, but then we end with, yeah, so that's interesting. Um, <laughs> Next week. <laughs> Next week. Here's this other um, abstract ethereal concept. concept. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, and I, as Seth and I were talking on this drive up, we're going on a hike here, so was that we start talking about how, how mystery is needed, and, and Seth and I had a lively debate on that word, yeah, need. Yeah, punk. Um, <laughs> because we both agree that mystery yeah. is inherent and is is needed in respect to it's how we grow and expand, is being yeah. comfortable with this inherent Uh, a knowing that we have within all of ourselves, within the world, right? The thing that I want that I want to be clear on is it's not that we need to. Sometimes we have a tendency to create mystery, but it's we're creating mystery that is actually more controllable, um, that we can actually in some way escape the anxiety of mystery. That's not what we're talking about. We're talking about being brave enough to feel the anxiety of not being in control.
2: One example is I remember hearing a lot for reasons of trying to help someone for sure. Like the the heart is there, but hearing a lot growing up, like when some tragic event would happen, well, God's ways are higher than ours. That's like a way of forcing mystery um, rather than like you know, trying to—I would say—reconcile something too early. Not—it's it, a way of spiritual bypassing something yeah. to not feel the pain that's there, mm-hmm. to feel the difficulty. To me, that's kind of what you're saying, right?
0: Yeah, and and like in in out, outside of spirituality, right? There's—it's it's a really stupid analogy, but I'm really great at those apparently. Uh, if we can get you'll <laughs> you'll hear worse than the hands one, the scissor <laughs> well, hands. I haven't heard it yet. I'm so. oh, sorry, <laughs> <laughs> um, but it. it I don't know how, to, how a car works, right? Some people do. I can be oh, that's just a mystery to me. No, it is actually something I can know that. Or, yeah. or I could just, you know, I bet there's a little gremlins mm-hmm. that, are, that are turning the wheels. Yeah. I'm just, just kind of creating some sort of mysterious. It's like, or I could just learn how, to car, how a car works. And I guess, anyways, all that to say, I just wanted to clarify. That's kind of what we're meaning, that we need to engage the mystery that is always and ever present not not substitute it for a mystery that is controllable or just or just lazy thinking,
2: yeah definitely, and that that also plays into one, another thing we talked about as well on this wonderful drive of how there is a tendency uh in some circles to to bring in the concepts of subtypes or wings or tri-types as a way to stay separate from the actual difficult or dis- uh, uncomfortable experience of a person, of, of them not uh, staying in their lane for you to be in a relationship with them, you know? Yeah, like, you need to stay the same uh, the way that I, I understand you, you know, or... or or I just need to come up with a new, add another layer onto why you make sense now. Let's do, let's use this kind of, you know, concept. Yeah. So that's a, that's also what we wanted to address here. Like using kind of these two words, using, um, other concepts within the Enneagram world as a way to mediate you, like putting you, putting something in between you and the actual experience instead of having an immediate, uh, direct experience with something that's, that's more uncomfortable, but more closer to the truth.
1: I think that's I think that's really interesting, you know, th- this yeah, notion that hey, if you deviate from my simplistic script for you that I got from my version of the Enneagram, then that's okay. I've got this other version I can just lay over that and then now you make sense again, right? And that that gets mm-hmm.
2: problematic. What else was there, Craig?
1: I feel like you guys are gonna sing in a TikTok video or something. <laughs> we should. Well, here. You're in your snow, car.
0: No, no, no,
2: snow. It won't be long before we. Oh my. Okay, we went there.
0: So one other thing that we wanted to clarify for this episode, as we were re- re-listening, is this concept of of archetype, and that there's often some assumptions made that. Archetype is perhaps this thing that is ever-present through time and more of a To use some philosophical languages here, like an essentialist argument that Baked into the universe are these nine archetypes that have forever been but that's that's not exactly how we're using the word Seth, could you kind of give us a a clarification on what we're using those yeah,
2: words as. Um, as I was listening back, I was trying to come up with something that more aligns with um, like how we've gotten here today and why we are the way we are. And uh, just this this uh, theory, of, you know, the theory of evolution, how we slowly have evolved over time toward a specific purpose and how we're you know trying to make meaning today. So I, I just, I thought of like an archetype more so than as a patterned, patterned wisdom of evolution, basically. Like, it's not something that maybe that's been around since the very beginning of existence, but something that's kind of evolved into um, humanity in order to make sense of how we can be here better today. Tom Condon talked about typing, uh, and he said somebody was trying to ask whether this is nature or nurture, and he said, ultimately, it doesn't matter because what you can do is you can work with the pattern that's showing up today, uh, um, yeah, yeah, and so I'm just wondering if you know, we can get clear on the concepts of what we mean. But <laughs> how much does it matter if what we're working with is what we're working with is today? You know, yeah, because we can't really do like the fossil studies of well, oh, this is when enneagram first showed up in the human psyche. Yeah, <laughs> right,
0: right. It's 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 impossible to know necessarily the origin and all that other stuff. But coming back to the lived experience, and I guess I mentioned at the end of the episode that the tool of psychology, spirituality, philosophy—all of those are—it's about connection. Those tools we develop those tools to understand and see clearly our connection with the universe and those around us. Now, it doesn't have to m- have some sort of existential meaning to it, but it is the tools in which we use to, to understand and to integrate ourselves into the world we're surrounded with.
1: Okay. So without further ado, enjoy this episode that I was not a part of, but now I, I am a part of in some,
0: <laughs> some small <laughs> way. Yes. Some small way. <laughs> yeah. All right.
2: And welcome back to Fathoms, an Enneagram podcast. Abram here with my fellow wonderful counterparts, Fatho- the Fathonians.
0: Fathonians, Fathomists, Fathom-
2: my, yes. my dear friends, um, uh, though we are missing one person again today, which is rather sad. He's out of the country, which is awesome. Uh, you know, just, just a noticeable presence, not there, mm. lingering in the dark. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Drew is not here today, but today we do have.
0: Uh, yes, hello. We are here, Lindsay and I, Creek. Uh, what are we talking about today?
2: Today um, we are probably going to label this prototype, archetype, stereotype. Because here's the thing, y'all. Um, we just there's there's so many ways to use the enneagram, and still seemingly um, perpetuated and uh, pervasive within culture is a a really inappropriate and demeaning way of using the Enneagram. And that's kind of one of the things we wanted to uh, touch on today uh, briefly. So especially using these words, they may be unfamiliar words, but I guess we want to begin with sort of defining these uh, to help navigate this conversation, because I think they'll be rather helpful. So first, when I say prototype, what comes to mind for you guys?
0: Manufacturing,
3: robots, <laughs> AI,
0: yes. robots. Yes. Yeah,
2: exactly. But that no, they it, it, it that word is usually used within machi- machinery, like the machine world, for sure. But within this context, our conversation, uh, it's often like the very first, the very first of something. It's like the preliminary model. Um, it mm-hmm. is the beginning, like source of. All the other ones are, or it's the it's the only one like it is basically what that means. Mm. Um, it is the individual, it is the uniqueness that makes up that one first thing.
0: Mm-hmm. So that's yeah.
2: that's yeah. what we're working with with that with the word prototype here.
0: How does that relate to the enneagram? What relate that to type?
2: Yeah, no. So the prototype is referring that to, with the enneagram is what I would say is the person. There's what, almost 8 billion people in the world now. And so there's that many prototypes, I would say. There's that many unique Mm -hmm. individuals, personal human beings with unique uh, stories. No one is like the other. Everyone has their own fingerprints, right? There's that many unique stories in the world. So that is the prototype, the individual, the unique human with their own personal story. Yes. Okay. The second word, the fun, I would say the more fun word here is archetype. It's a fun one to say. That's a uh, maybe a little bit more or maybe less I should say,
3: uh understood? I always think of Greek mythology.
2: Yeah. Yes.
0: Yeah, I think I think of um drama of uh the arts hmm. in archetype playwrights. Mm.
3: Yeah,
0: for sure. Just doing some word yeah. association here. Don't mind me.
2: <laughs> yeah, those are all correct, but specifically how we're using it here today is it's it's wide, most widely used to my understanding as a kind of universal pattern. So the mother figure is an archetype. The father figure is an archetype. The way that you can, in a universal patterned way, uh, watch how a flower unfolds or, or grows. You know, this is uh, an archetype. It's a universal pattern, something within mm-hmm. the wisdom of the of reality that shows up consistently in a patterned way. Mm-hmm. So, referring that to our conversation with the enneagram, I often have referred to your your specific. Enneagram type as an archetype. So within the Enneagram, we could say that there are nine archetypes Mm -hmm. because there are nine specific patterned uh, ways that people operate, you know, through or with.
0: Yeah. So an archetype is an observable pattern that is continually expressed and we can find not every tree grows the same, right? But we can observe that there is a specific pattern in which a tree grows that we can predict on some some with some level of confidence that it will grow the way that we've seen it um totally our our Enneotype, right is in we were talking and this maybe isn't a perfect analogy, but we uh, Seth and I were talking last night how it's almost like your type is I have. I have screwdrivers for hands, and Seth has hammers for hands. Right? To open a cereal box, we're gonna have to go about it in a different way. Right? Just okay. I didn't say it was a perfect analogy, but
3: um, what a wonderful so, analogy. <laughs> I'm like, where is he going? Edward scissor this? hands. Okay. okay.
0: Maybe I'm the one with scissor hands, but. <laughs> <laughs> anyway so what? It, is, it is not who we are but it is what we use in order to uh-huh. get the things that we want
2: yes um, to continue that m- maybe a little more clearly uh, <laughs> you could say like breeds of dogs are archetypal but the personality sure. of each of those breeds is different how that dog mm-hmm. expresses that breed is different. That's the yes. person operating the uh, the pattern, the universal mm-hmm. pattern. So Great. next up, here's the thing, is when you take the prototype, again, the original, the individual, and you take the archetype, the universal pattern, or the eneotype, and you confuse those two for being one and the same, you get stereotypes. So this is the pattern: St- prototype, archetype, stereotype. Uh, so, you, and I mean you, each individual listener, uh, Creek, Lindsay, mm-hmm. you are a prototype of an archetype. Confusing the two, you become a
0: stereotype. Mm-hmm. And what yeah. when we when we miss when we start to label people as stereotypes? How do you? How does that harm the individual? How does that dehumanize the individual?
2: Well, yeah, it assumes that everybody is gonna just do the the pattern in the same exact way, in the same, you know, everybody is their pattern. And that's all I see then when I think you are an eight, you know, or I mm-hmm. think you are a, or a two. What, when the person, the individual operating the pattern yeah, every person has a unique relationship with that pattern, and so it's going to express differently. That's why, it's why you can't really talk about enneagram types and figure out your type through just behavior, because everybody does this in their own way because of their own story. It's like, I said that last night, like you put fifty people in the room that all identify primarily in their in their psyche with the eight pattern, the eight archetype. And every one of those people are going to understand vulnerability for different reasons because they learned vulnerability mm. through their unique story. So one, one thing that makes one person vulnerable won't be for the other. Even though they both understand that weakness is maybe something that they don't like, it's still going to be different for that person, for, every, for all 50 of those different eights, you know. Mm-hmm. So it limits people. It highly limits people. It demeans their. It dehumanizes people. Ultimately. Mm-hmm.
3: Mm-hmm. Do you think that everybody, to some extent, does this when they first encounter the Enneagram? Like it's almost just like a rite of passage <laughs> when you're learning the Enneagram. You kind of have to like go through this phase and mature out of it.
0: Hmm. I think. I think on some level, yes. Because you don't have as much um, when you don't have experience in data points to see how where the line is between archetype, prototype and stereotype are, you're going to lean into that stereotype a lot quicker as a shortcut, when you don't have data points that contradict the way an eight behaves, right? Um, or way a four is. And I guess that kind of leads us into our our next section here of why we actually do this, because it it can be helpful. It's what our brains do naturally to help us move the world efficiently. Um, Instead of having Mm -hmm. to, like we see a tree, we don't have to identify the genus and the the type of tree and all the other things about it before we can recognize it as a tree.
2: And we wouldn't be able to walk, right? Because yeah, there's this right? information right. we have to keep naming over and over. What is that? What is that? Right. <laughs>
0: right. Right. But if you just assume that a, the same tree is always going to be in the same spot and grow in the same way with the same branches, eventually you're going to run into a tree that doesn't fit that pattern. You're going to hit your head. I mean, I'm just killing it on these analogies today. I'm just I'm just going to say it. Great. Um, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's that's what I think. I think there's a way to to... to recognize that stereotypes are a shortcut and seeing those but then taking a step back and seeing where it actually points to what truth is it pointing to and then seeing that as a data point instead of the whole piece of data Mm -hmm. for sure
2: and that's a hard thing to do a very very hard thing to do because our brains are so naturally wired to label things like you were addressing creek but it's also for energy conservation like we don't have to so that we don't have to keep managing the amount of information uh coming in
0: uh lindsay what has been your experience with um, working through like when you started to learn the enneagram how did you begin to break out of like stereotyping people
3: Mm. yeah i i definitely went through this phase and i think that there's a there's a level of security that comes when you you see yourself in the Enneagram, it starts to bring you sort of a centeredness, like, oh, I have some handles now for this crazy life ride. Um, mm. And so because then it starts to bring you some peace, then you kind of think, oh, it, of course you don't explicitly think this, it's all happening, you know, subconsciously. Mm-hmm. But you think that you can use it to sort of control the the chaos around you a little bit because let's be honest i mean being in relationships with yeah. people is chaotic and people are chaotic in in different ways and so i think that when i encountered the enneagram it was a chaotic time of life for me and it just sort of brought some containers where everything just felt like it was colliding together but like you mentioned you know it only worked that way for so long because then I started to meet people that didn't fit into any boxes that I'd created in my mind. And, and I had to make space for those people. That's the kind thing to do, right? Right. (laughs) Not to, uh, (laughs) you know, disqualify their experience because it doesn't serve the purposes inside your own mind or fit the boxes in your own mind. Mm. Um, So making space for those people just made, my world get bigger and bigger. And now I'm just kind of to the point where I'm like, I don't really care if I know your Enneagram number. That's not nearly as important to me as seeing you and witnessing you.
0: Mm -hmm. Yeah. I think we, we so desperately don't want to be wrong with how we filter and categorize reality that where we fall into all sorts of biases I mean, the thing I see a lot in the Enneagram community is the uh, no true Scotsman fallacy, which is every Scottish person loves whiskey, loves scotch, right? But then you meet someone who is a Scotchman and does not like scotch. I was like, well, then he's not a true Scotchman. So mm-hmm. instead of reassessing your the category in which you've uh, constructed this reality, um, instead of adjusting that, you just remove the th- the information, the data points that don't fit. So, mm-hmm. the four who isn't a mess emotionally. Well, you, you you're too happy to be a four. That's that's just that's full of crap.
2: Here's here's the thing that um that's coming up for me is is that it's easier to be in relationship with something you can control, and mm-hmm. I think that's a, why. We need somebody, you know, it, when we, when the Enneagram comes along, it's like, oh, you're, you're this way, you show up in a patterned way. And now I can expect that from you all the time in every situation. Yeah. And now I'm, I can, I have some safety here in our relationship.
3: Mm-hmm. And then
2: we overdo it. You know, we over identify with that pattern as who you are, rather than, you know, a way to help us navigate our relationship with you. Like, how you are in relationship with your pattern is very helpful for us, but you are not your pattern. So it's, I just think it's a it's an easier way to be able to manage our anxiety around not knowing how to be with you. It's it's like it, when there's empty space, the brain is uncomfortable with that. The we fill it in with what makes sense. That's why we need to make meaning out of everything. And sometimes there's just <laughs> there's there's no reason to. Uh, label something because um, I think it's Kierkegaard that says to, to label is to name is to negate. Because most of the time when we label something, we confuse it for only being that thing and we don't leave space for the rest of what someone can become um, or the rest of what someone's potential. You know, uh, I remember um, early on when I was learning the Enneagram, I would just assume that my wife I uh, would do the same things that the book said ones would do, you know. But then, <laughs> the thing is, is that was that would be exactly what would cause so much frustration because my w- my wife felt like I just knew her already, and I didn't let her become anything more than the one pattern, and that was very dehumanizing for her. Mm-hmm. And so I think it's it's helpful to just say like just because you know a person's Enneagram type doesn't mean you know the person. Again, that's the way that we want to use the Enneagram, but it's really unhelpful because we don't allow them to to be anything more than the comfortable and safe way they navigated the world growing up.
3: A lot of people recognize the conflation of the archetype and the prototype to create the stereotype. At some point but then maybe they think that learning about the subtypes is the answer to that so Mm. um, and then can kind of get stuck there too so I would say you even have to keep evolving past learning subtypes because that also is only going to get you so far even people who share subtypes have different life experiences and traumas and they're going to show up in the world differently.
0: Mm. Wow. I no, totally
2: resonate with that.
0: Yeah. That's a phenomenal point. There's so much out there that people are continually trying to use the Enneagram and make it more and more complex to continue to try to fit everyone into an explainable model, model. And yeah, and then it just becomes either com- so complex that it's no longer useful, or it becomes highly mm-hmm. inaccurate because you're just forcing people into these pre-existing patterns. Again, it's a it's a bid for control, for safety, for trying to understand the r- the, the craziness of life.
2: Yeah, yeah, I think that's why wings get misused
0: mm-hmm. as well.
2: It's a way mm-hmm. to figure out mm-hmm. how. How, how can you just keep adding potential other behavior to find the best description of what names all of your, your possibilities? And it just, you can't do that. I, I really, I think any additional thing besides the one primary pattern, anything after that often just gets used as a way to like figure out how, well, if you don't exactly show up like oneness says in the book, well, I got to keep adding other options for. Oh, that makes sense of how that that would work now. You know, it's just forgetting the the operator, the human that expresses oneness, and that's why you can't. <laughs> it's why typing is so problematic if you don't
0: kind of understand this. Yeah, and it, and typing isn't so much to to label everything that is you or everything that. It's not to label everything that's wrong with you. It's not to label everything that's right with you. It's it's just to shine a light on some on some patterns that you can steer in a better direction. Um, that you don't have to continue to uh, use in a maladaptive, harmful way. Moving into the
2: last this fourth section, uh, in light of this, the prototype, prototype archetype, stereotype, um, kind of why. Uh, why we do this? Uh, because we have brains um, that are trying to keep us surviving. <laughs> yeah what what do we what do we do about this? That's the the thing we want to move into f- to finish this with. What's the practicality here? Uh, how can we practice uh, using
0: this information? So I think within this within this question, I was like, so yes, we've acknowledged the prototype, archetype, stereotype. There's some issues there. We understand why we're doing it. So the practical side of it is. Uh, I think we I think we've labeled enough how it is harmful and how it's limiting and how it's just really not useful way to spend your energy honestly so how one how do we become aware of it like what are what are some ways in which you found helpful to be able to take that step back and to see, oh, this is the thing I'm doing um, what's that signpost that pops up that oh I need to I need to look at things a little bit more closely and then once you find that you're doing some sort of dehumanizing, some sort of limiting someone by their type, what are the practices in which you open up to that more fully?
3: Um, well, I, I think of some practices, I think that there are some practices you can do in the moment as you build awareness, but just some practices in general to help you become aware in the first place. Um, these are kind of weird. I'm not going to lie, but I found them to be uh, quite sweet. I don't know if that's the right word or not. They're sweet practices for me to engage in. But, um, you know, like when a train is coming and you're like, what's the route I can take around this train? Like, how can I get around this? I've started. If I have time, I will sit at the train and it really only is four minutes maybe five minutes at the most so it's a nice chance to just catch my breath and breathe and then what you'll notice is that there's graffiti all over the trains people write like sometimes really heavy stuff on Mm. the sides of these train cars and I don't know what it is about that that just it stays with me but um I'm not a person who spray paints on the sides of buildings or train cars, and so i I don't know, I, I don't know where that need is coming from. Like, I just need to get this thing that's in me out of me. I'm going to spray paint it on the side of a train, and there's something about me witnessing that um, and wondering about it. Where, who is this person? Where are they coming from? And what are the struggles of their life? it's just a few minutes of an openness to people I'll never even meet. Hmm. So I don't know. I like that practice. And then the other one that my husband always makes fun of me for (laughs) is that I always read the obituaries in our local paper every week. The paper comes, (laughs) it's on my doorstep. (laughs) I will sit at my dining room table with a cup of coffee and read the obituaries. And it's, really remarkable um, how you can really see archetypes and prototypes Mm. when you're reading the obituaries because people Mm. are not that different and also really really different and uh, Mm. I don't always read all the whole obituary section that would take a long time but sometimes I'll just pick a few that stand out to me and just remember that person and their life and Again, I may never meet them, but it's just a way to stay mm. open to others. Yeah. You know,
0: the the train okay. analogy is definitely a quintessential uh, Midwest analogy, <laughs> but I think it works.
3: <laughs> <laughs> yes.
0: <laughs> uh, yeah. For for those that don't know, the Midwest has a lot of trains, and we get stuck
3: Lots <laughs> behind
0: them many many times. I just love what you, forget now exactly how you said it,
2: but the the sameness and the difference of the people you read in the obituaries, obituaries um, yeah, I how people do their sameness is vast. <laughs> it's, it's so different. Yeah. I just think that that is a really beautiful conundrum sort of way to describe the paradoxical nature of huma- humanity. There's so hmm. much similarity, yet there's so much distinctness that's widely different, you know? I think of a, a quote, right, uh, from Carl Rogers. <laughs> he says, um, "A person is a fluid process, not a fixed and static entity, a flowing river of change, not a block of solid material." a continually changing constellation of potentialities, not a fixed quantity of traits. Personality types are different kinds of personality, not different kinds of people. And I think for, so at least for some practices, I think for me at least, it's around helping in the moment distinguish the difference between a person and their archetypal expression. Um, especially when I have in the back of my mind pretty often, uh, The enneagram i'm looking for the type where's the type and like we said i need you to fit into the the category of how i can be in relationship with you that's how i can control this and be be safe because too much um too much unknown is unsafe for the system that's like that's how computers work but that's also how our brain works i think um too much unknown is not safe for me i don't know how to exist with you if i can't make sense of you so i need you to be the static thing i can can control and so Often I wonder if maybe, Creek, I, I like how you phrase it, the question, um, how do you know if you're doing this? Like when I'm frustrated that you're not being the way I need you to be. Mm. And, I, and this often happens with me and my kids. I just need you to do what I've asked you to do. you know. But I think we do this with, with uh, adults and our friends and our family as well. You're mm. not acting the way that I need you to act, the way that makes sense for me to be in relationship with you because I'm not willing to change. Mm. Damn it. (laughs) I'm not willing to change. You have to. And that's kind of basically what we're saying, uh, which is silly. Um, Yeah. But I I just think that is a symptom, if you will, of knowing when we are needing a person to be static because our relationship with them, uh, it's insecure. It feels insecure if it's not the same thing every time that I can bank on. And Mm -hmm. I I think another thing is, how can I be truly present with the person here behind the archetype, behind the pattern? That's the one that's operating it. And so I think that is around actually encountering the human being that's here today, rather than the concept I have of them from yesterday, or any previously Mm -hmm. held understanding of a person. You know, I I tell uh, couples that I get to sit with. Um, You don't fall out of love with a person. You fall out of love with a concept. And so commit to getting to know the person in front of you every day. Mm -hmm. And um, so I think some of that is about how how are you holding your own typeness? Um, Because if you need to be fixed and static, and that's what feels most safe for you, then that's most most likely when you're going to be needing other people to also be that. Mm -hmm. And then uh, finally, the last thing I think of is, We've maybe have we named it before on here the cataphatic and the apophatic ideas. I can see these. Oh, I love
3: this. Yes,
2: because I just think it's a helpful way to understand multiple expressions or ideas here. So it's within the Christian monastic tradition where the the word cataphatic is is around needing a a handle or labels or or characteristics of to describe God with uh, because God is this infinite. Um, mystery that is indescribable, but I need to have handles. I need to have words like good and beautiful and and strong to be in relationship. I can't be in relationship with something I can't identify, probably in my own self as well. Um, But the cataphatic, that word just means is around uh, labeling things to understand them, which is beautiful, which is awesome. But the problem comes when you you overdo it. So then the other word comes in here, which is apophatic, which is about the, the quote that i said earlier uh, i think from kierkegaard i could be getting that wrong but he says to label something is to negate something because the way the brain works is anytime you label something you confuse it for only being that thing and so this is why we make uh, a god of god <laughs> this is why we distort mm-hmm. humans because we need them to be what we're comfortable with what is similar to us so we conceptualize the infinite which uh, makes it incredibly limited. And I think we do that with humans. We do that with reality, with infinite reality. Um, so the apophatic is to hold things loosely, hold the the label I have for it loosely because that's not all it is. It's a way for me to understand it. It's a way for me to be in relationship with it. And it's also then a way for me to stay not anxious about how I am in relationship with it or not. So. The, the ancients, the monastics talked about how these were meant to be held both in tandem. This is how we approach something like the infinite, something like God, or something like the infinite mystery that is a human being as well. The cataphatic mm-hmm. and the apophatic are so meant to be held working in tandem.
3: Yes. I love your saying this. Yeah. You see my note here? The need for mystery.
2: <laughs> yeah. And that reminds me of that quote from Rohr. He says that mystery isn't unknowable. It's infinitely knowable. And when we don't remember people are humans, we don't get to keep knowing them because wow. we've, mm. we've gotten rid of the mystery that they are.
0: It reminds me of the, the quote from Tara Brock of you can't love what you aren't discovering anew." Um, Ooh, yes. Yeah. And so like, it, it makes me think for me how, when, when I start kind of bouncing off of what you were saying, Seth, with the, when I, when I see that, Someone is acting in a way that I I don't want them. I want them to act the way I want them to act. When I catch myself doing that, what instead of trying to figure out oh, what's what's their type, I mean, sure you can use the enneagram in this situation. the The issue is not that you're using the enneagram; it's that you're using it as a predictive model instead of a prescriptive model. Yeah, yeah. And this is this is why. I think again, um, we all really enjoy like how Mario approaches the types where it is striving to feel, let's fill in the blank. Mm-hmm. Um, because even, even if you're like, I don't know this person's type, it feels eight. It feels mm-hmm. something like that. You're not, pers- you're not predicting a behavior. You are, you are acknowledging, hey, they're striving to feel this particular, they're possibly trying to feel this particular way. How can I relate to that? And in what ways, how are they affecting me? And can I relate to not wanting to feel out of control or not wanting to feel disconnected or wanting to, or like being scared of being too connected? Right? If you can use more of that language and less of the well, that's just how they are. You've you've lost compassion, which is which is the fundamental reason why we use the enneagram is to find greater compassion for greater wisdom. So that's for me. That's how I choose to use the enneagram in these in these situations, and not letting them become stereotypes.
3: When you were talking about earlier, um, <laughs> the bid for safety, and control, I was thinking about how I wonder if we can begin to recognize that that's happening and that that is us trying to secure our survival and then just kind of coming to a place momently where we can practice letting go of control of that. Um, So I wonder if you guys have any sort of practices that lead us to mystery and releasing our grasp on control. I know one for me is the prayer of St. Francis, uh, which talks about, I'm not going to say the whole thing, but um, talks about seeking to understand more than being understood and seeking to console
0: mm. rather
3: than to be consoled. Cause when I want to be consoled, I want to be understood. I'm, I'm out for my own survival. And when I realize that that's just such a futile way to move through life. You know, I can I can let go of that grasping. So I'm just wondering if you guys have any practices you like that are actively letting go of control.
2: Yeah, I think that that's really beautiful, that, that prayer. Um, one that comes to mind, uh, and my kids get annoyed when I ask them if they want to do it with me, is I say, do you guys want to experience something with me? Uh, and now i've I just call it what it is I it's love it's that. basically it's basically addressing something through the five senses uh, so that you're not only using your conceptual mind that has already labeled it and doesn't need to understand or whatever is in front of you anymore uh, it's using the five senses to actually experience and, and encounter what is here so we often do it outside, but you can do it with each other, you know like it's a fun game for them too but but like what do i smell about you what do i what do i hear right now how especially though what do i see um i think there's there's like when i when i pass it like we talked about trees already but when i pass a tree my brain doesn't even want to unless i'm a landscaper look at like the kind of tree it is but if i actually stop uh and I, i even slow my walking that's one one of the ways that i when I start doing this practice of the five senses, when I slow my walking down, like to a obvious pace, I see more things than I would have previously. And then when I start to see things, more things, I start to see the depth that's actually there. And then, you know, that's the thing. Again, to that quote, like, it's infinitely knowable. Mysteries really are. And I think that is what we live in. We swim in mystery. Um, mm-hmm. That is infinitely knowable. And so I think sight, just the five senses, at least is a, practicing engaging those um, on a consistent basis is a way for me to push back uh, or distorting things uh, and encountering them more directly as they actually are in the moment now. Yeah.
3: There is a practice that I have done before and I learned it from Brian Zond. And um, he, he calls it sitting with Jesus um, which personally I find comforting, but I know not everybody would be comfortable with that. But it's, it, it's basically just the idea of sitting in the presence of love, recognizing that you are loved, and then letting love bring someone to mind that you have trouble loving um, or someone that maybe you're in conflict with. And then you just sit in silence in the presence of love, imagining that other person and this has been really powerful me for me in some really tense relationships to even imagine that person as a child. I think anytime you can imagine someone you're really struggling with as a child, it is beautifully humanizing.
0: Yeah. Yeah. A few thoughts are coming to my head uh, for what I exactly do in these situations, um, the practice for me is i I don't want to create my reality, I want to experience reality, and what I mean by that is instead of find constantly finding ways to make things neat and tidy what I, I want to drink deeply of everything that is here so I mean we yeah we talk about meditation all the time, but that's it really is such a key component is as it's in some ways the exercise of the heart to stay with what is to learn that you can feel deeply the pain and the joy and not um, be overcome by it and see the beauty in the contradiction that is in front of you to see that in some ways it is the contradiction and the tension that gives us the pleasure that we seek. It's, I mean, Christmas day is amazing. The best part about Christmas is December 1st through 24th. Right? Then you get the Christmas day, (laughs) it's like, all right, that's great. But like the anticipation, the tension, the it's not quite here yet, but it's gonna come. That's the enjoyment that we're seeking. Um, And so the sooner we can get to that point of enjoying (laughs) the journey instead of the destination, as as cringy as that is um, and cheesy, (laughs) it it is in some ways the source of true, like deep sort of peace and happiness. In some ways, it's trusting that you have the capability, the bravery to exist in whatever life is happening around you without trying to
1: um,
0: make it into your own story to control it in a way that you feel is best. And I just, we miss so much of life because of that. And I think I just got tired of that. I got tired of trying to control the narrative and I'm like, no, I'd rather just control my response to the narrative that's happening, that's actually happening instead of being ignorant and scared of what is happening. And that just comes with deep work, um, which is meditation, which is silence, acceptance, feeling the sensation of the emotion um, and just being brave enough to acknowledge that we're super tiny and and we just get to live here. We just get to do this thing we call life on this crazy rock hurtling through space.
2: (laughs) For sure. Um, and I know we're probably wanting to wrap up here, but Creek, I thought that was really beautiful. I loved, um, it reminds me of um, in the Pali language, there's this word called Vipassana. And, you know, it's, this word is often understood within a kind of meditation, but the word Vipassana means seeing things as they really are. And so as you practice this sort of Vipassana meditation, it helps you let things be mm-hmm. as they actually are without tr- trying to control them, without trying to understand them through your definition that you need it to be. So it's, it is it is this specific meditation is around not trying to control things as they come, as you hear them, as you see them, you just simply allow it to be, you know, you uh, witness it and in your witnessing you allow it mm-hmm. to just be simply as it is without... Trying to control it or making anything other, making it other than anything other than it actually mm. is as it is. So, yeah, for me that is a pr- that is a practice of like it just reminds me that we other um, people to the extent that we've othered ourselves. Mm. And so, what are the parts mm. of me that I don't allow to be as they are because I've you know I've defined them as they're not okay for me to be that way. You know. Yes. Mm. Um. Yeah. So like that it's working with your shadow is 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 so much of so much of what I think we're talking about the work here. But
3: Yeah. When we let ourselves be a mystery, we can let others be a mystery. (laughs) (laughs)
0: Yes. 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 In in the book that I may or may not write sometime in the future. The title is giving people the dignity of being a stranger, and and Seth, what you were saying made me think of, I forget who said it, but I just thought it was so profound, and it kind of catches you off guard. No, definitely (laughs) wasn't. Um, But the meaning of life, (laughs) the meaning of life, and like you're like, oh, what is the meaning of life? I'm ready, is to see. That's it. Oh and i'm just mm-hmm. when you when you sit with that i mean we don't need to get into the meaning of life all this other stuff but i just I just to me <laughs> it speaks to what we've been talking about right the person in front of you what are we all bidding for what is the enneagram for what is religion for what is philosophy science everything out there is for is to connect and to experience to give and take love right? To give and receive love. And so you cannot give and receive love if you aren't seeing clearly, if you aren't trying constantly to see more and more of what is and what is reality and what is true.
2: Yes. And you can't, you can't, that's a bold statement, but you can't Mm. be in true, real, honest, authentic relationship with someone if you don't let them be as they actually are. Boom.
0: Well, that was a really great conversation. i um, so glad uh, we were able to go the places we did, and it was scary uh, <laughs> to kind of just riff on something like this, but um, <laughs> hopefully, <laughs> hopefully, listener, you got something out of this, and you're able to approach life and the people and connections around you with a bit more peace and clarity and always stay curious. We'll talk to you next week. Thanks for listening to this episode of Fathoms, an Enneagram podcast. If you found this episode helpful in any way, consider sharing it with a friend or family member. We are so honored to be on this journey with you, discovering our inner depths one fathom at a time.